Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm Deputy Editor of The Spectator. I'm delighted today to be joined by Michael Lind, who is a fellow at the New America Foundation and the author of several books, including An Economic History of the United States. And we're going to be talking about the effect that Donald Trump is having on the left, the right and the centre of American politics. Donald Trump is speaking at CPAC this week, which is a quite strange but nonetheless quite important gathering of conservatives in Washington. I was wondering if I could ask you, first of all, will his speech go down very well? Has he re-energised the conservative movement in America or is he merely walking on its corpse? Well, uh, to begin with, CPAC is not that important. It's always been kind of a collection of fringe groups yeah. and uh, even conservative presidents like Ronald Reagan did not, did not spend that much attention to it. But in, with respect to your question... But they all, I mean, they all go and speak, speak at it, didn't they? Reagan spoke at it. Bush uh, uh, That's right. But uh, historically, it was kind of fringe populist groups and, and uh, libertarians and anti-tax people, and it wasn't even representative of mainstream conservative voters. Yeah. I think the bigger story is what we learned from the election is that most Republican voters, including people who were thought to be conservative voters, are not very conservative. That is, they really don't care about what were the historic priorities of the um, uh, Buckley, Goldwater, Reagan conservative movement, mm. which were uh, slashing the size of government, being hawkish abroad, and having very puritanical religious attitudes uh, uh, towards sex, among other things. Yes. Uh, Trump violated all three of those uh, core tenets of movement conservatism and uh, won the primary and then uh, the presidency. And despite the predictions of the so-called never-Trumpers that this would lead to a deep and lasting split in the Republican Party, uh, Trump got a vast, overwhelming majority of ordinary partisan Republican votes. But they do, they do like annoying liberals. That's one thing that sort of brings the conservative movement to get together again, isn't wouldn't you say? Well, that's true, but uh, both parties do that. Yes. Uh, one interpretation of the transgender guidance rules that were just released suddenly, not too long ago by the Obama administration, uh, was uh, that its political goal was to provoke overreaction by the religious right, and then this would drive out turnout. The Democrats, you know, and obviously there's a case to be made for it as a policy, mm. but uh, both parties try to choose wedge issues yes. uh, that will mobilize their base and infuriate their opponents. I think you've said before that the American left's brain seems to be broken. What do you think of, about the right's brain? Is it also broken? We're seeing a lot of this sort of overreaction, uh, deliberate provocation on both sides. Well, I think this is a historic moment in American history uh, and also in uh, the history of the transatlantic West, because I don't think you can view Trump's election outside of the context of, of this uh, populist wave that has produced Brexit uh, and it's uh, uh, roiling uh, European politics as well. Mm. Basically, Trump not only liquidated two political dynasties, uh, the Bush family dynasty and the Clinton family dynasty, he liquidated what were the dominant organizing structural schools of thought of American politics? Uh, the older one was Reaganism, which uh, or, or movement conservatism based on libertarian economics, uh, what became known as neoconservative, hawkish foreign policy, mm. and and uh, religious conservatism. 
and the other movement uh, that has been the organizing principle of the Democrats since the 1990s was neoliberalism, which was a kind of synthesis of what used to be fairly moderate economic conservatism, the support for free trade and and a, uh, a certain amount of deregulation and balanced budgets mm. with, with uh, identity politics. And, you know, Trump, uh, essentially both of those have collapsed now on both sides. In this time of great flux, would you argue then that Trump's relatively low approval, well, quite, quite seriously low approval rating for a new president is not as bad news for Team Trump as it might normally be in a, in a normal presidency? Yes, I agree with that. Uh, and of course, he lost the popular vote. Yeah as did George W. Bush in 2000, and, and Bush in 2004 uh, came back and, and won a majority. So, you know, I, I don't think uh, that what, what you're seeing with the so-called resistance, a term uh, borrowed from the uh, French in World War II, is, is an attempt by, uh, well, a lot of it is just spontaneous. I mean, it, it is motivated by spontaneous revulsion by uh, many people against Trump, you know, as an individual, among other things. Yes. But the, the, the Democratic establishment is trying to use this in the same way that the uh, Republican Party establishment used the originally spontaneous Tea Party uh, populist rebellion on the right between uh, 2008 and 2010. And the Democrats hoped that just as the Tea Party uh, led the Republican Party to capture the House in 2010, that the resistance will lead the uh, Democrats uh, to victory in the House. The, the Senate, for various reasons involving geography and demography, is very difficult for the Democrats to recapture, but they have a shot at the House in 2018. Yes. And how do American conservatives, or, or indeed just people who voted for Trump, it's hard to say en masse, I know, but how do they react to the latest Russia allegations? Because this is clearly going to be a sort of ongoing source of stories for the New York Times and so on that Trump's connections to Russia are dangerous for America. Do you think that's going to play with the American electorate, or is it just an elite obsession? It's just an elite obsession. You think there's... Yeah, uh, and, and remember, well, to begin with the idea that Trump was elected by Russian interference, the Russians evidently did interfere uh, in, the, in the WikiLeaks exposure of the Podesta emails. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's quite clear that the uh, working-class voters in the Midwest who voted for Obama four years ago and voted for Trump this time, you know, we're not going to vote for Hillary. And then they suddenly read these leaked emails and, yeah. and changed their minds. Yeah. So there, there's no basis to that. Now, the interesting thing is most Americans, and this is true of most people in most democracies, are quite ignorant of foreign affairs. Yeah. And they tend to follow the cues of their leaders. And so you have seen that as uh, Trump has expressed more accommodating view towards Russia, which can be explained purely on realpolitik, geopolitical grounds, mm. because reversing the emphasis of the Obama administration, which focused on Russia rather than China, the Trump administration seems more focused on uh, uh, China, both in geopolitics but also in trade. Mm. And uh, uh, so it would make sense you know, to try to separate China and Russia. And as far as I can tell, that's the strategic logic by it. It's not because... Trump has hotel investments in Moscow or something, or he's being blackmailed. I mean, that's just kind of silly yes. conspiracy theories. It's, now, Is that just more sign of the, their brain being broken, as you say? No, I think at, at the elite level, he actually is challenging what had been the bipartisan establishment consensus uh, since the end of the Cold War, mm. which was, was to expand the American alliance system as far as you possibly can until you meet resistance. And uh, during the Obama years, 
uh, the U.S. Uh, met the resistance uh, in terms of Russia pushing back, trying to assert its own sphere of influence along its borders uh, in Ukraine and elsewhere. Mm. And obviously China, you know, with its uh, buildup in the South China Sea. You know, there, the, the establishment, and this is, the, there is a bipartisan, you know, it's not the deep state, a kind of ridiculous term borrowed from the Turkish uh, military political situation. Yeah. But it's, it's like Whitehall, you know, I mean, there, there's, you know, the permanent soldiers and the civil servants, and they really don't, whether they're the, the nominal boss is Democratic or Republican, you know, there's a worldview. And uh, he's challenging that worldview, which until recently has been that the United States should provide global security forces. It should be the global cop. Yes. And, and it should turn a blind eye to uh, the trade practices uh, targeting its industries of both geopolitical adversaries like China, but also uh, allies like uh, Japan and South Korea and, and uh, even Germany. Yes. So at a global level, Trump is an extremely radical figure politically. How much do you think, I know this is a sort of question people ask a lot, it's very hard to answer, but what you're describing is, is really a sort of political genius at work, but nobody really thinks Trump is a political genius. Do you think he's sort of much cleverer than he makes out, or do you think he's just being pushed along by forces he doesn't really comprehend consciously? Well, you know, Hegel had the idea of the world historical figure. Yes who was promoting the events that would lead to the next stage in history, even if his own motives were completely uh, crass and, and personal and despicable. And his, his example was Napoleon, yes. who was promoting the, the spread of liberal ideals, even though he himself was a, uh, a sociopathic mass murderer. <laughs> so yeah. uh, so I, I think Trump is a world historical figure. Yes, He has toppled the two dominant political dynasties in the U.S., uh, he has trampled on right-wing orthodoxy and uh, liberal orthodoxy. He may end up being a purely destructive figure, mm. clearing the way uh, for more constructive figures in the future. Uh, but, but I think this is a real turning point in history in, in the sense that a lot of people expected the Obama administration would be, but it was not, because uh, it, it carried forward the emphases you know, of the older bipartisan establishment on everything from entitlements to foreign policy. You don't see... If a Trump presidency is disastrous, the elite reasserting itself very aggressively at the next election. Well, they, they will certainly try. Yeah. And at the elite level, the never Trumpers suffered terribly in the uh, election because uh, they had very few voters agree with them that, that you know, you should either not vote or, or vote again, you know, for the Democrats. Uh, but nevertheless, they had the money and the uh, institutional uh, expert opinion and, and uh, the most of the media. So, yeah, there's a counter-revolution against Trump and is going on right now and will continue. What the problem I have is I don't see where their voters are. Yeah. You know, they, they control, you know, 80% of elite opinion and organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations and, and what we call the Acela Corridor, the New York-Washington Corridor. But do they have any voters? On the uh, Democratic side they really don't have any voters because uh, the real passion and energy is with the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren left. Yes. Uh, it's not with, you know, the bipartisan foreign policy establishment that wants to cut entitlements and, and crack down on, you know, Russia. On the right, I think that uh, Trump will benefit, as any Republican president would benefit, from the fact that most Republican voters pay little attention to policy debates. Yes. And they're just partisans. And so the more the Republican president is attacked, they will naturally tend to rally behind him. But at the 
level of elite opinion. I've never seen anything like this. Yes. You know, this uh, war against a, a, a president in my lifetime. Well, it's fascinating times. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast anytime on iTunes. So please do. 